Good morning. Can all hear me? Okay. All right. Who had a Who had a good time singing to the Lord? It was a really good time. The presence of the Holy Spirit was almost tangible. Did you enjoy Scripture reading today? You wish it happened more? Yeah. I'm not. Just something to pray about. I'm I'm not. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. I'm not. I don't want to make anybody uncomfortable. All right. Uh, If you have your Bibles, please uh, let's uh, open or scroll or click on John 11. We're going to read verses uh, 38 through 44. We're going to work with a little bit more than that, but uh, we're going to read John 11, 38 through 44. Okay, if you're there, I'm going to read, then I'll pray, and then, uh, and then we'll talk about it for Lord knows how long. This is the reading of God's holy word. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these words, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! The dead man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. Father, it is with unspeakable joy that we come to you this morning facing a text that brings us such, such hope. Lord, the battle lies in seeing your glory. And ultimately, it's not about anything else. But it's about us seeing your glory through your Holy Spirit. If your Holy Spirit does not show up, we are helpless and cannot do anything. We cannot muster up true fire. But you and you alone can come and light up our hearts and set our hearts on fire for Jesus as we get to behold His glory revealed to us on the pages of Your Holy Scripture. So this is our petition to us and just this is our petition from us to You and just like the Lord Jesus did, I thank You that You have heard me. Not because I'm righteous like the Lord Jesus is, but because in His righteousness, we who believe in Him stand before you. 
And we know that it is your delight to reveal your glory to your beloved people. So come, Lord Jesus, be magnified and let us treasure you so you are glorified in our delight in you. We pray all of these things in the wonderful name of Jesus Christ. And God's people said, Amen. Amen. It is with great joy that we come to this Holy Scripture. Today we are faced again with the love of God, the power of God, His affections for us in revealing Himself to us. We see in this chapter of Scripture that it's puzzling because God's love is so much higher than our love. God's thoughts for us, they're so much higher and greater than our thoughts for ourselves. It just looks different. This chapter has already puzzled us. If you remember, Jesus is a little bit away from Bethany and He gets a message from Martha and Mary that, Lord, your beloved friend is dying. He's deathly ill. And Jesus' Jesus' response is, This sickness is not does not lead to death. This is not going to end up in death. That's not where it ends. But this is all about the glory of God. Verse 4. And the Son of God being glorified through it. That's the response of Jesus. We see that He doesn't only say that this is all about the glory of God, this whole ordeal, but He also says, the the text says, that Jesus loved these people. Verse 3 says that your beloved friend, the one whom you love, is dying. And then verse 5 says that Jesus loved Martha and Mary. But then, verse 6 says that Jesus decides to rush and go to Bethany and heal Lazarus. That's not what it says, is it? Verse 6 says that Jesus, hearing upon hearing that His beloved friend was about to die and His friends... His, the, the, the sisters of Lazarus, they were going through a painful ordeal. Jesus doesn't rush to them. Jesus decides to stay where He is two days longer. He doesn't come. He lets His friend who's sick, He lets him suffer through this sickness and eventually die and the two girls that he loved as well go through the whole ordeal of seeing their brother sick, getting worse and worse, and eventually dying in their home. They watch the whole thing, and Jesus seems to be expressing his love in allowing all of this to happen to them. The Apostle John is communicating to us that in God's mind, since Jesus could just order Lazarus to be well, 
like he did a few chapters ago. That he healed someone from a distance, from miles and miles away. He could have healed Lazarus, he didn't. He could have rushed over there, laid hands on Lazarus, and Lazarus would have been healed for the glory of God. He could have spared the sisters and the friends of losing someone they loved. He could have given them an easy, troubleless life. But our passage of Scripture today seems to imply that a greater demonstration of love is not a smooth sail through life. It's not an easy life with no issues. But it's Jesus giving a far greater gift than an easy life. Jesus giving Himself to these people in the midst of a troubled life. Isn't His love greater than ours? We cannot fathom the depth of His love and greatness and kindness and how wonderful He is. Lazarus lost his life and Jesus seems to think that it is a better gift to allow him to even die to just come resurrect him and give him his glory to let him behold his glory the apostle John in writing these words he's saying once again that Jesus Christ is better than life I wanted to sink in think about it Jesus Christ is better than life is that how you feel most of the times is that how you behave? Is that how you act? Is that what guides and guards the way in which you live and face the difficulties of every day in this sin-broken world? Is that the, real the reality that governs your life? Do you take risks that are moved by such a reality that even if I lose my life, it does not matter because ultimately Jesus is better than life itself. Is that what guides where you place your affections? I pray, I hope and pray that this would be a reality in the forefront of our minds and that it would govern our affections and the way in which we live and feel and lead and obey and do everything because the Holy Spirit has just told us that this is a reality. He seems to think that allowing them to behold His glory is better than life itself, is better than a life 
without troubles. But what is the glory of God? I am grateful for a new movement, there's a new environment in our evangelicalism that talks about the glory of God. There's preaching, there's a lot of talking, there's a lot of blogging, there's a lot of conversation going on on the glory of God. There's a lot of people that seem that there's a revival, a resurgence, and we seem to treasure the glory of God. And it is, we can talk about it all day long and not define it. And it is very important for us to define it, to learn what it is, to treasure what it is, and to understand it better. Because in the end, life, creation, the universe, and everything is not about you and me. God is not ultimately about us. God is ultimately about Upholding, treasuring, delighting in His glory. And we are benefited by it. That is the best deal for us because His glory is better than everything. And when He allows us to see it and to behold it and treasure it and love it, that is the gift of Himself to us and there's nothing greater than it. There's no other greater happiness and joy that we can find in anything created but in His glory. So it's very important because it's all over the Scripture. It's everywhere. And we need to learn how to define it. Now we can talk about it our whole life and still keep... Still Keep defining it and learning it. And we're not going to do this now because it can take someone their, their whole life. But there are things that we can do in a sermon. There are things that we can do in, in five minutes. So what is the, the, the glory of God? God is holy. God has attributes. They're all good. He's just. He's beautiful. He is eternal. He is Father. He's merciful. Oh, He is loving. Those are things that He is. When He puts that on display, the public display of all of His majesties, His beauty, His essence, nature and character, when He displays it all and He lets us see it, He puts it all in creation and the heavens declare the holiness of God, the glory of God, His holiness, His beauty, His majesty made public. That's the glory of God. The angels in, in Isaiah 6, they sing, they fly around the throne, and what do they sing? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. He is holy and the whole earth is filled with His Holiness, that would flow so well because he's talking about who he is. The angels are talking about who he is and his holiness. But what do they say when they're singing and crying out to each other? The whole earth is filled with his glory. The majesty of Jesus being displayed. The radiance of His holiness. One author defines it like this. God's glory, and I quote, God's glory is the radiance of His holiness. The radiance of His manifold, infinitely worthy and valuable perfections. 
End quote. The love of God in, in, in this page of Scripture is being demonstrated by showing His glory to these people. Showing His glory to them. So as we look at this miracle, we all know what's going to happen. He's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. We read the text. We know the story. He is going to do that. But as we look at this portion of Holy Scripture, as we look at this miracle, please keep in mind that this is not about Lazarus. This is not about primarily about Martha or Mary or the Jews. This is about the glory of God. Keep your focus on Christ. Not the corpse. On Christ. And we'll see why soon. We'll see why soon. But our focus is on Christ. Everything else is secondary. It is looking to Christ that we see God's glory. It is focusing on Him that we see how glorious and majestic God is. You need to know that when, when, when God reveals His glory to you and He allows you to behold, even if it's just a glimpse, to behold His glory, moments in which you experience Him in the truth of the Holy Scripture, through His Holy Spirit, God is shouting to you, I love you. I love you. Maybe today is the day that you need not only to know that you are loved, but I need you. I want you. I desire for you that you feel loved by God. And that you know who He is for you in Christ Jesus. And that you behold His glory in demonstrating His power and love for you. And that you love and cherish it and feel it in your heart that you are loved by the Lord Jesus. He is saying to you, not in a general way, not, in, not to everybody looking at you in the eye. And He's revealing Himself to you through the Holy Scripture. He's saying, I love you. And I want you to feel loved by Him. Because when He reveals Himself in an intimate, personal way to you, He does it because He loves you. And you need to know that. I hate that the love of God, the love of God has been made into a trivial thing and that it almost doesn't mean much anymore because He loves everybody. It doesn't matter what you live, what you live and how you live and what you say of Him and how you respond to Him. It's just a... Like, yeah, whatever. Yeah, he loves me. I love me too. Uh, but I will not be robbed of this. It's His essence. The Apostle John says that God is love. I will not allow... This superficial, shallow understanding or proclamation of God's love or pagan understanding of God's love to rob us of such a beautiful doctrine 
That is the love of God, the true biblical love of God that is just holy and pure and merciful. And it is my pleasure to say that God revealing Himself intimately and personally to you is His demonstration of His love. Only possible because of the ultimate gift which is Jesus Christ. And it is exactly what He is giving to these people today and believing in Him. He is giving a little bit more of Himself to you. Verse 35, a little bit before our text, just to give the context. Verse 34, he says, Where have you laid him? Where is Lazarus buried? And then verse 35 says that Jesus... They say, Come and see, Lord. When they arrive, or as they arrived, verse 35 says, Jesus wept. Now please, let's not read black marks on a page, on a screen, in a way that we put together letters and we sound them out and we just ignore such a statement. Do you understand who is crying? Jesus Christ is crying at the death of His friend, at the sadness and misery of our enemy, death. He is crying at His friends, Martha and Mary, going through a tremendous pain and grief. And Jesus Christ Himself is very acquainted with grief. We do not worship a stone a piece of wood. We worship a man that is God Himself. And He has feelings. He loves. He empathizes. He gets angry. He gets moved. He gets sad. And there's a mix of these emotions here. And He's not distant and only transcendent that doesn't, doesn't involve himself with the affairs of his creation. But he loves his creation and he created with love and he cares for his creation and for his people and about his people. And God weeps. We are to weep with those who weep. And Jesus Christ is being the supreme example of it. As they cry and feel... He is feeling their pain. How comforting is it that Jesus Christ Himself, right now, no matter where you are and what your pain is, He's making intercession for you. And at this moment, He's not praying as someone who doesn't know you. He's not praying for you as someone who doesn't know you. But He actually feels your pain. He's not indifferent to it. And He has gone through many pains so that by believing in Him, through faith in Him, we wouldn't have to go through them. Ultimately, eternal separation of His loving, gracious, from His loving, gracious 
presence in heaven. He has gone through it. But as you weep, know that Jesus Christ knows what it is. He felt it. His flesh. And today, He is alive. And not only intercedes for His people, but He feels your pain. And one day, He's going to redeem this world. He's going to redeem His whole creation. And He's going to make every wrong right. He's going to punish evil. And everything is going to be made right. And I want you to know that this light momentary affliction will pale, will fade away compared to the glory that we will experience and behold for eternity in heaven in His loving presence. It will just fade away. So even, even if we must suffer for a little while, let's endure our suffering Trusting in Him who conquered even our last enemy, which is death. And swallowed up death. Let's suffer trusting in Him and keeping our focus on Him. Running to gain the ultimate prize. Jesus Himself. Because it is His delight to give Himself to us. John 1.3 says that all things were made through Him. And without Him was not anything made that was made. He's crying. Colossians 1.16 and 17. 15-17 He is the image of the invisible God. By Him all things were created in heaven and on earth. Visible and invisible. All things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things. And in Him all things hold together. He's looking at the grave and He is crying. Hebrews 1.3 He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. He is crying. Let's not ignore verse 35. That is the mystery of our God. Who even though He's the King and He's majestic eternally and He has no needs whatsoever. He alone and freely chose to take humanity upon Himself and live in this valley of, of tears. In this sin broken world. Not as a king being carried everywhere, everywhere and served. But He chose to live as a poor man who had a job. A peasant. No riches. And he lived a perfect 
life. And he suffered a brutal death even though he was innocent. He freely did that and that was not the worst that happened to him. But the worst was the misery that he experienced on that cross that was put on him by his own, own father whom he had loved and been loved by throughout eternity past in that moment in this space, time and space continuum. He experienced an eternity of hell because God unleashed on him his unlimited full-blown fiery wrath that Jesus did not deserve but sinners did Jesus experienced that to conquer death and redeem us and be glorified in the fact that now through this we are made able and willing to see Him and delight in Him and have our fellowship restored with Him and eventually live forever with Him without even, not only the effects or consequences, but without even the presence of sin. Perfect new heavens and new earth. Learning and delighting in His glory and holiness forever. One day you will be resurrected for this, for eternal delight in Him. It starts here by believing in Him, by trusting in Him, by casting yourself recklessly upon Him and laying all your independence your self-sufficiency, your sin, your arrogance and pride, laying it all at the foot of the cross and looking to Him for the forgiveness of your sins. That's when it starts. And today, once again, He is inviting all of those who desire this to come to Him. And He will give you rest so that my friends is love and he is crying verse 38 says that he is deeply moved again the expression deeply moved has been used a couple of verses before and it means that he was sad tremendously sad his emotions were stirred. He was down. He was also angry. He was greatly troubled. That's the, that's the expression that is used. It was a cave. And a stone lay against it. Now, this cave, the way they, they would do it is that they would like hollow it up. They would make a hole on it. Normally, it wasn't like a tall hole. They would make a hole, and, and then they would make, they would make like a, a groove 
and get a stone, kind of shape the stone if they could. Uh, saw depending upon how much money they had as well. But and then they would roll the stone, and the stone would be on that groove and completely seal that grave, that tomb, that that rock. It was like a, it was a cave. And that's how it would be. It was a heavy stone, and that would uh, prevent odors from coming out. Uh, they didn't really use... There were techniques that the Egyptians used to preserve the bodies. Uh, that's not what they did. The, the Egyptians would put them in, in some uh, uh, balm or solution for 70 days. They would also take all of the organs from the inside so that there would there wouldn't be any decay from the inside of the body. I mean, completely make it hollow. Um, no brain, no bowels, no anything. And they would leave uh, the, the dead bodies for 70 days in this solution. And then it would harden the body a little bit. And then they would wrap it all like a mummy like we see. Uh, the Jews didn't have that practice. This is why part of, this is part of, I believe, part of the concern that Mary had. Uh, if it was an Egyptian body going through all this process in four days, probably um, the body wouldn't be, uh, wouldn't have an older, uh, an older. Uh, but the Jews didn't really use those techniques. Uh, so this is part of our concern. And uh, when Jesus asks them to, verse 39, to take the stone away, to remove the stone, Jesus orders them to. Take away the stone. That's exactly what he says, verse 39. Jesus knows that there would be an odor. Jesus is not stupid. Jesus is not insensitive. The man is in tears. He loves these people. But look at how Martha uh, responds. She's freaking out. When he says, take away the stone, it seems like she stops things when she says, Lord, he's been dead for four days. There will be an odor. It's pretty smelly now. This is going to be bad. She's probably also thinking, I don't want to see my brother decaying. I don't want to have that image of him. I don't want to have the stench of a dead body in my nose. Forever, probably, because maybe it gets out of your nose, but apparently in your mind, you can always remember that. She's freaking out, but this is not a, a well-thought-out act of rebellion or, or repudiation for what Jesus is going to do, for what He's saying, against what He's saying. She knows that He isn't stupid. She knows that He isn't insensitive. She knows that she's loved by Him. She knows that He loved her brother. Yet she treats him like this. This is what happens when she probably thought maybe he, like for a quick second or something, maybe he wants to see his friend for one, one last time. Maybe, you know, that's what all he wants to do and that would imply that he's insensitive, that I want to see him. I don't care what impression is going to cause anybody else. I just want to see my friend. But she knows. She knows his character. She knows that he's not like that. But yet, that's the way in which she, she reacts to his action, to his words. He's going to be stinky, Lord. He's decaying by now. Let's, please, let's not do this. She loves him. But she's gone through so much. 
And this is a moment in which maybe there wasn't a filter. Maybe she could take a few seconds before opening her mouth. Maybe she wouldn't have. This is a moment, this was a faithless, uh, thoughtless moment that she had, and she opened her mouth. Now, before we're too quick to chastise her, I know you've done it too. I refuse to believe that I'm alone in this category. We've all have spoken without thinking. We've all have had those moments, even if they're, let's just hope they're short moments, but they're faithless and, and thoughtless. And we reacted to the kindness of Jesus, to His sovereignty. We re reacted to His action as if, Lord, do you even know what's happening here? Do you understand what you're doing? We all reacted as if He's running the universe in the wrong way. We've all have done it. And that's what she did. But this, this is what happens when you focus not on Christ, but you focus and you take your clues from the consequence, from, from the, the circumstances. That is what happens when your eyes are not on Jesus. You start behaving and reacting in an earthly, worldly way. It's almost like spiritual amnesia, where you're not aware, all of a sudden, or for a moment, you are not aware of who God is. Or even worse, you're not aware anymore of who our God is for us in Christ Jesus. And you react and you grieve as those who have no hope. And you deprive yourself of trusting in Him and see the wonderful deeds that He's about to perform. When you focus on your problem, what happens is that when the solution comes for your problem, what do you see? Solution to a problem. How long does that last? How long, on average, does it take for another problem to come up? Do we even experience life one problem at a time? I mean, problems, they might be, they might have different degrees and depths and, and, and implications, but I'm still, I still need to meet that person that has not had a problem. Problems, they come and go, and it seems like there's always something bothering you. There's always some kind of headache. They might be too bad, they might be okay, they might be a little bad, but they don't come one at a time, and they never go away altogether. There's always something hurting. There's always something bothering you. So, you focus your attention, your energy, and all of your being on your problem when solutions come. All you see is solution to a problem. There's 16 more in line. That, hasn't, that haven't been solved yet, and that's how you live life, and that's no good. Conversely, if your focus, and I'm not talking about being stoic, not caring, you know, nothing matters anymore, let's not show emotion, or, or uh, another philosophy that says that nothing matters, and you just don't care, oh, my daughter got killed, yeah, it doesn't matter, it's all going to end up anyways. You know, we're all going to die anyway. 
That's not what I'm saying, but the main focus is on Christ, not your problem. You still feel your problems, and you fight against them, and you try to solve them, and you seek solutions for your problems. But your focus is on Christ. Your problems, your issues, your grief, they all become vehicles through which you see and taste the glory of God. Whether they're solved or not, when solutions come, you go, praise God. He heard my prayer. He listens. He cares. He loves me. Praise God. If they don't get solved, you believe in Him that God will have a purpose and He will accomplish a purpose in your life for your sanctification to transform you into the image and likeness of His Son, Jesus Christ, until the day that you die. You know that He is working for your good and even though you don't understand or what he's doing or you don't know how to get out of this or you think that the pain is unbear- unbearable and you might even think that you're not going to make it he shows up and even in the midst of your pain he shows up and he shows his glory And you experience His glory because you are looking to Him. Even in the midst of your tears. I I have heard and I have been through it where you experience a moment of what it feels to be unbearable pain. And then Jesus shows up. The pain doesn't go away. And Jesus shows up. And honestly, if I could rewrite my my history and go back and take that pain away, and with taking that pain away, I would take that experience with Jesus away, I would have it the same way. I would not trade that day in which Jesus showed up in the middle of our tears. I would not trade it for the world. I have heard people saying crazy things like I was getting ready to do my mom's funeral a day after Christmas after God took her in a buzz rack and Jesus showed up. I would not trade that moment for her life. That's powerful. And he loved his mom. He loved his mom and he missed her. I have heard people saying, I went through many years of depression and discouragement. And Jesus was always there for me. I would not change anything about my past, about those years. That is the power of God's love in the life of the believer. His love that is demonstrated by Him allowing 
us to behold His glory, allowing us to sense His nearness in the midst of our pains. Now, we're not crazy and want to seek pain unnecessarily, but Jesus has said that in this world we will have tribulations. But He also said that He will be with us. The psalmist says that even if I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I know that even there you walk with me and you comfort me. I don't know what's been done to you. I don't know what you've done. I don't know what the weight on your shoulders is. I don't know what the grief you go through or have gone through. I don't know. But what I do know is that if you cast yourself upon Him today, today, not when you die, not next week, today, He will, one, cleanse you from everything that you have done, no matter how dark it is. Two, he will cleanse you for any, from any and everything that has been done to you, no matter how hard, how dark, how ugly it is, no matter how long ago it was. He will cleanse you and free you. And He can bring full healing of your heart, emotions, of your being, of your soul. He has the power to do that. He spoke the worlds into existence. So cast yourself upon Him today. Trust in Him. Trust that He who is able to raise the dead is able to handle your pain and comfort you in the midst of it and heal you from it, of it and be in it with you. Trust Him. Trust Him. Believe Him. Believe in Him. Jesus said to her, verse 40, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God, Martha? Didn't I tell you? So maybe this is an allusion to verse 4 when the messengers get to him and say that he is, that Lazarus is about to die. And, uh, and he says, this is not, I know you think he's going to die, but this is not ultimately about death. This is about the glory of God and me being glorified in it. So probably this is about verse 4, the message that he sent back to, to Martha and Mary, uh, which would be a, a loose paraphrase of what he said before. Uh, but also very probably, uh, possibly, is uh, an allusion to a specific conversation that he had with her. Martha, if you believe, you will see the glory of God. It is through faith that you will see His glory. It is through faith. See, but we need to know this, that it is lack of faith in God, lack of trust in God and who He is for us in Christ Jesus, this is precisely, precisely what keeps us from seeing and tasting His glory. 
lack of faith is a horrendous, horrendous thing. We've got to fight. We have to fight. You see, you sense lack of faith coming towards you in the horizon. You spot it, you aim, and you shoot it. And you kill it. Daily. Twice a day. Three, three times a day. Ten times a day. I don't care how long. I don't care how many times it takes. But it's a fight. It's a war. It's on. And He's ready to fight with you. And for you. And let me tell you, He's won, he's won the war. We're in a battle that the war has been won already. That's got to fuel your fire to win it. Now, one thing I want to point out is that Jesus did not say, He didn't say, Martha, I can only perform this miracle if you believe. He did not make the performing of the miracle, He didn't make the miracle dependent on the depth or strength of Martha's faith. You need to know this. Jesus does not make any of His actions depending, dependent on the believer's faith. He's not bound by it. He chooses to do any and everything He wants. Martha could have been a full-blown atheist. Jesus could have still played basketball with that rock. He could have made it flip on the air and, and throw, him across, throw that, that stone across the ocean. He could have done whatever he wanted. So if someone tells you that you don't have your blessing because you don't have enough faith, that's not found in Scripture anywhere. When Jesus said that he could not perform, when the, the Scripture says that Jesus could not perform many, many miracles there because of the lack of faith, it's because those people, they were not believers. They were in rebellion against him. And even the fact that God did not perform many miracles and signs for them to believe that Jesus had sent him, even that is an expression of God's wrath against unbelief. God's passive wrath against unbelief. You guys are not going to believe it. I have thrown enough pearls to the to the swine. We're not going to do that. It has nothing to do with you coming to Christ in faith and casting yourself upon Him and trusting in Him and in Him alone and how He is revealed in Scripture and you're being born again and forgiven of your sins, inhabited, dwelt, indwelt by the Holy Spirit and all of a sudden thinking, my mom died because I prayed without enough faith to save her. My child is still sick because I don't have enough faith. That is destructive, that is a lie, and that is not what we are taught in Scripture. Our God is much kinder than this. He knows who we are, and He's not in love with a future, better, 2.0 version of your faith, of your strength. He loves you as you are right now in the process of sanctification, transformation that He is in charge of ultimately anyways. Don't believe if Satan tells you that you are going through it 
because they don't have enough faith. It's not about enough faith. It's about the quality of your faith, meaning saving faith or worldly faith or just professed faith. But it's about, about, about saving faith. If you are in Him, you have enough faith. You have the measure of faith that He gave you and you are saved and you are cared for and you are in His hands and no one can pluck you out of there. And whatever happens to you, and I, when I say whatever, it means whatever happens to you, according to Romans 8, 28 through 31, He's transforming you to the image and likeness of His Son. That's the goal of everything that is happening now. There's no condemnation against you, according to the beginning of, uh, of Romans 8. No one can bring any condemnation against God's elect, because it is Christ. Who, who, it is God who justified them. It is Christ who raised from the dead. So everything that happens to you is an expression of God's love for you because He's using all of those things, working out all of those things for your ultimate good. And your fight is to trust in that when the pain seems unbearable. Amen. So they took away the stone and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But I said this on account of those on account of the people standing around that they may Believe that you sent me. Did it for them. So that they would believe that Jesus was sent by the Father. You see, it's not only it's not enough to only be impressed with Jesus' power. It's not enough to think that he's a great miracle worker and he was a good old guy. Just a good old fella. That's not enough. We see that all religions in the world, you know, they all want a piece of Jesus. You know, they all want to claim Jesus for the religion, and you know, they'll say that he's a great prophet, he's a good person, a good moral teacher. I love him. He was a nice guy. He cared for the poor, etc. It's not enough to be impressed by him to say that he was a good moral teacher. That he had good morals and ethics. It can't even be true to begin with, because he claimed to be God. If he, was, if he wasn't lying, he was crazy. If he was lying, he was a horrible person. A lot of people died because of this claim, this claim that he made of being God. Probably millions of people died throughout history because they said Jesus is God. So, if he lied, he's a horrible person. But I, I'm not going to go there, that's a different sermon. Uh, but Jesus did it for them, so they could hear His fellowship with the Father. I want to make a few observations about, about His prayer. One is that we do not hear an actual petition. He's not actually requesting anything in this prayer. He's just thanking God that He had been heard. The communication took place, this request took place way before. Because in verse 4, He already knew that Lazarus wasn't going to be dead. 
So at least in verse 4, Jesus already knew that this was not going to end in death. There would be death involved, but this was about the glory of God. So he knew what was going to happen. So this communication happened way before this prayer. He said that God heard him. You know, so he had already asked, and God, he's just thanking God for hearing him, for having heard him. Verse 41. Jesus already knew that he was going to raise Lazarus. The other one is that um, Jesus shows himself to be subordinate to the Father, in submission to the Father. And he's showing that the power that he needs, that he's going to use, that he's going to display, the life-giving resurrection power, creative power that he's going to display and make use of, he needs it to come from the Father. He's asking the Father and he receives because God hears him. Now, directly connected to the fact that God hears him is the fact that the teaching of the Old Testament is clear. Unless it's a prayer of repentance, God listens to the prayers of the righteous. doesn't give ears to the wicked. Jesus Christ indirectly by saying you always hear me Jesus has just said that he is righteous before God Jesus has claimed perfect righteousness at all times always before God there is nobody else like him Indirectly, Jesus has just said that He is one with the Father. Jesus, in saying that He is righteous always, there is only one who is like that. Saying that He is directly connected and in love and in delighting and having this oneness with God, He has just said that He is God. Now, did you know that you can walk in this assurance as well? Not that you are God, but that you can be heard by God. You can approach Him and be heard by God and talk to God and thank God and have fellowship with Him and have conversations with Him and have this intimacy, emotional connection with God and be heard by Him. You must be saying, but I'm not righteous. You don't know what I did. You don't know the thoughts I had this morning, let alone the whole week. I'm not righteous. I can't stand before Him. And I would agree. I'm not either. But through Jesus, who is the righteous one, we can approach God boldly because upon us placing our faith in Jesus, God looks at us as if we had had the perfect life that Jesus lived. That we were not only innocent of our sins, blank slate, but we are positively righteous. We did all of the righteous things that Jesus did. We thought all of the righteous things that Jesus thought. We felt all of the righteous things that Jesus felt. All of the righteousness of Jesus is in our account because God places his own righteousness in our account so that we can make use of it. That status, all God sees when we come through him, come to him, is Jesus Christ crucified. 
And through His blood we are cleansed. We are made righteous positionally before God. And one day, righteous even in our actions and thoughts when even sin will not be around anymore. When He comes back in the final resurrection that is pictured in this story, this narrative that we are going through. And that's got to be hopeful. Jesus Christ did that so that they would believe. Now, there's a way in which preachers, and that's a horrible thing, I know, that preachers, they try to make one last point during their prayers, and they're praying not necessarily to God, but they want to get another three, four minutes to make a point that they forgot or make an application. Uh, there's another horrible use of prayer, public prayer, that people will say things, you know, just to send a message to someone, and that is horrible use of public prayer. But when Jesus does it, that is Jesus revealing His glory and His love to the people that are standing around. It's like, God, I know that you heard me. I'm not thanking you in public because I just found out that you heard me. I'm doing it so that they can hear that as I do this, I'm doing it with you and that you heard me and that you're granting me all of this so that, meaning the purpose of me doing this so that they may believe that you sent me. So that they stop believing that I'm just a miracle worker. That I'm a, I'm a wonder worker. Uh, a wonder worker that can get you to do whatever I tell you to do. That somehow you're my butler because I'm so good. That I manipulate you into doing the things I want you to do. No, so that they may believe that you sent me. The implication of that is that believing that Jesus is sent by God, you believe His claims. By believing His claims, you are eternally saved. Your eternal address is changed forever. That's the implication. And Jesus did this to save these people through faith in Him so that they believe. Verse 43, he changes even his demeanor, I believe, his position. He looks up. He looks up in subordination, in, in being submissive to his father. And he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! Someone has said that it is a great thing that Jesus said the name Lazarus. Because otherwise, Hades would have been emptied out. Because you'll get that later, it's okay. It was good. <laughs> uh, Hades would have emptied out because this voice has the power to create, to bring about what it commands. This voice has created the universe. This voice has spoken the worlds into existence, visible and invisible. And Lazarus comes out. He was dead for four days. He comes out to the amazement of everybody. Even the Jews that when they saw Jesus weeping, they perplexed, they say, Look, he really loved him. But he loved him so much, why didn't he heal him? So now they get their answer. 
He didn't only heal him, he resurrected him. He has the power to give life to a heart, to make a heart that has been dead for four days and stopped for four days and rotting. Now this heart has the power to pump new flesh, living, new fresh living blood through veins that were dead and rotting already. And his body is restored. His brain now has brain waves going. He has rational thoughts. And he hears the command and he's alive. He gets up and he walks out of the tomb. Now the voice that created the universe is commanding life into the body of his friend. Would you see the glory of God if you were there standing by that grave? Do you think you would have seen His glory? It doesn't matter He's been dead for four days. This is a preview of what is to come. It's not about Lazarus coming back. Lazarus died again. Okay, he went on to die again, okay? Martha and Mary died. The Jews died that were there. Okay, they went on to... They moved on with their lives and they, they died again. This is not ultimately about them. It's about Jesus. But one day He will come back. Amen. And He will command all of the dead to come back. For Him, to Him, it doesn't matter if it's been four days or thousands of years. Everybody is going to be risen again. Everybody is going to be raised from the dead with the command of His voice. It's going to happen. I tell you this, brothers. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall all, not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. At the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable. And we shall all be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Today, we feel the sting of death. In this present age, we feel it. But death has been conquered already. And one day, we will all be raised, just like Lazarus was, but better. Better with a glorified heavenly body that will never see corruption, will never decay. Because Jesus has 
been raised. And He is the first fruit. He has been raised from the dead. And today He lives. And He will come back and resurrect all of us once and for all. We will be judged for reward that He will bestow. He will grant us because He is merciful and generous. He is a generous King. And He will give us crowns. He will reward us. He will let us enjoy Him to the max. And live constantly and eternally in this state of delight. In looking at Him and beholding His glory and majesty. And He will also glorify Himself in the punishment of the wicked that have rejected Him and His beauty and majesty and glory and power and pardon and forgiveness, He will also be glorified in that for eternity and His perfect plan will unfold and nothing can thwart it. Nothing or no man can change it. And to this God who is able to raise the dead and He and will raise the dead, we sing our praises and we give our hearts and we worship and we long for Him. Once again, today is the day. Come to Him. Wherever you are, come to Him. Amen? Let's pray and then we'll sing to this great God. Father, it is such a delight to behold Your glory. There is no greater gift. As we saw today, You are better than life. Let us live let us live according to this reality. Let us behold your glory more and more and delight in you and find our ultimate satisfaction in you. And let us hope. Let us hope and long for this day when you will return to earth, Lord Jesus. And with your shouts, the dead will be raised again. The tombs of the graves will be empty. And we will all be with you forever. I pray and thank you in the holy name of Jesus. Amen.